And good morning, Highland Church family. Now let's start with the elephant in the room. I know that there's a noon Packer game and I'm the longest winded pastor on staff. So here's the deal. Every time I see someone turn around and look at the timer, I'm adding a minute to my sermon, okay? <laughs> so I, don't be doing that, okay? Well, let's go ahead and pray and we'll dive in together. Father, we thank you very much for the privilege it is to gather together today and to worship you. We thank you for the truths that we've been able to sing this morning. We thank you that you are a way maker, that you are truly a light in the darkness, uh, and that even when we don't see you at work, you are at work in our lives. And there's probably been many stories and many scenarios that we can think of where we didn't see you at work in the moment, but we were to look back and say, we, you never once left us alone. So fathers, we uh, just contemplate those truths and now turn our attention to your inspired and errant word. Allow this message to nourish us, to convict us, to show us how to better love Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 1990s, a young naval officer named David Marquette uh, was given control. He was made the captain of a ship called the USS Olympia. Now, going into this command post, he had spent an entire year uh, devoting himself to studying every last detail of the ship. He wanted to know this ship from the inside out. But then right before he took command of the ship, the unexpected happened. Last minute, a commander of another ship, the USS Santa Fe, unexpectedly resigned, and David Marquette was redirected to take command of the Santa Fe rather than the USS Olympia. Now, to us, that probably doesn't sound like that big of a deal. So what? He, uh, he turned and, and changed ships. However, for David Marquette, that was a big deal for two reasons. First of all, the USS Santa Fe and Olympia, though they were both nuclear-powered submarines, they were not identical ships, which means the entire year of preparation, that tireless work, that memorizing all those details, much of it is now going to waste. Most of us would probably not be excited about a year of hard work being wasted. That's not a great thing. But second of all, the U.S. Santa Fe was the equivalent of naval purgatory. No one wanted to be the commander of this ship. The reason being, the Santa Fe was the worst performing vessel in the entire Pacific fleet. It had the lowest crew morale. It had the highest turnover rate. It had the lowest retention rate, rather, in the entire Navy. And it had the lowest overall battle preparedness score. If you're in the Navy, you probably don't want to be on the ship with the lowest battleness preparedness score, right? So begrudgingly, David Marquette took uh, control of the USS Santa Fe in 1999. Now, during his time in the Naval Academy, Marquette was taught what he calls a leader-follower methodology of leadership. In this leadership style, the leader knows all and tells all, and the followers are conditioned for compliance. This is a common leadership style in the military, uh, law enforcement, and even some of corporate America. However, about a month in, uh, Marquette realized the dangers and limitations of this style of leadership. One afternoon, his crew was putting together some battle simulations. And for this particular simulation, they acted as if their main engine had been disabled. So he was relying on their backup engine. So they have all their schematics, they've got everything ready to go, and he's on the deck and he gives out an order. He says, engage our backup engine at two-thirds speed. All the junior officers say, aye, aye, sir, engaging engine at two-thirds speed. And next, guess what happened? 
Nothing. The boat didn't move. And Captain Marquette said, uh, what's going on? Why isn't the boat moving forward? And one of the junior officers said, uh, you gave an impossible command. This ship doesn't go at two-thirds speed, sir. And embarrassed, because he's never been on a ship before that doesn't go two-thirds speed on the backup engine, he said, well, why in the world did you repeat the order back to me and try to do it? And the officer said, well, because you told us to, sir. Right? And at that moment, David Marquette realized, you know what? Blindlessly following incompetent leaders on a nuclear submarine might not be the best scenario in the world. So from that moment on, he said, I am changing my leadership model because this leadership model is iffy at best and it could be catastrophic at worst. So from that moment on, he decided his goal was not to create lifelong supervisees, but rather future leaders. Captain Marquette understood that in a leader, know-all, tell-all model, he is the glass ceiling for a ship. Rather than capitalizing on his crew potential and cultivating their diverse strengths, this model suppressed their critical thinking and leadership potential and overall competency. So his new model, which he called a leader-leader model, shifted away from barking orders to his subordinates, and instead, he just began asking them a simple question. When they would ask him for something to do, he'd say, well, what do you intend to do? And he'd make them answer that question. And if they gave the wrong answer, he'd shepherd them and correct it. But over time, they gave great ideas, ideas he had never even thought of. And slowly but surely, he empowered his staff to implement their ideas and intentions and become future leaders and creative thinkers. Captain Marquette's ultimate goal was to reproduce himself as a leader multiple times over. Now, at first, he was berated for his change in leadership. There are many things that military command are great at. Adapting and changing is maybe not their forte. So he was berated by his higher-ups and said, this will never work, you're going to ruin this ship. But then all his critics were silenced a year later. The The year 2000, they had their annual review, and it came back that the Santa Fe had gone from being the worst performing ship to the best performing ship in the Pacific Fleet. Not only that, they set records over the next decade for the overall best morale of their crew, the highest retention rate, and then officers were disproportionately selected from the Santa Fe to be the next generation of submarine captains and commanders. They set a record and won the award for the most improved ship in all of the Pacific fleet. This amazing story of leadership is recounted in a book called Turn the Ship Around, a leadership book written by Captain Marquette that was published in 2013. And I open with this story this morning because I think it highlights a spiritual principle. I think the American church can sometimes reflect the leadership model that Marquette learned in the Naval Academy, a leader-follower model. And in this model, the clergy, the church leaders, are the leaders and the congregation are the followers. The clergy knows all, tells all, while the congregation simply follows orders. The clergy are responsible for the actual work of the ministry and the congregation is treated as consumers. The clergy is content to spoon feed spiritual truths to the congregation rather than equipping the congregation to be self-feeders of God's word. However, this is not the model that we see in the New Testament. And this is not the model that we desire for here at Highland. Church leaders, according to Ephesians 4.12, are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's you, Christ followers, the saints, they're to be doing the work of the ministry and building up the body of Christ. It is our job to equip you. 
The church needs to embrace a leader-leader model where every disciple of Jesus is being trained and equipped to become a spiritual leader and contributor. The, the spiritually mature are called to reproduce themselves spiritually through a process called discipleship. And according to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, the task of disciple making is for every single person who professes the name of Christ. Every Christ follower is called to be equipped and trained for the work of the ministry and to be a disciple maker for the kingdom of Jesus. Or to phrase it another way, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then Jesus is commanding you to be a disciple maker. All of us have to get off of the bench and get into the game of kingdom work. And so we need to begin this morning by realizing that all Christ followers are called to be missionaries and disciple makers, not just those who do it vocationally. Now, I know for many of us, that might be an intimidating calling. That might be scary. So we have to ask the questions, how do I do this? How can I be a disciple maker? How can I do this well? And we're not going to probably definitively answer that this morning, but hopefully we can at least find a starting place this morning in our passage. So that's going to be our big idea of the morning, how to be a disciple maker. Now, Pastor Jeff generously gave me 40 verses to preach on this morning. So you have him to thank, Jay Hines at highlandcommunitychurch.com. He loves complaint emails while he's away. So if you're looking for something, no, please don't do that. I'm just kidding. Uh, but obviously we won't have time to fully unpack all 40 verses. However, in this section, I do believe that we see at least five principles for how to be effective disciple makers. There's actually more, but I had to pare it down to five. So five principles for how to be effective disciple makers. And hopefully these principles will help instruct us for how we can live as missionaries in our greater Wausau community. So let's look at Acts chapter 13, verse 13 for our first two principles. One short verse, but we're actually gonna derive two principles from it. Here's what Luke records in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Pamphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now let's pause there for a moment. Something stylistically has changed in these verses from how the missionary team is first described at the beginning of the chapter in Acts 13, 2 to 3. Let me read those verses and I'll see if you can spot the difference. Here's Acts 13, 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Did you notice the, the subtle shift that has taken place? In Acts 13, 2 and 3, it's Barnabas and Saul that are sent out. Word order is important. And then in verse 13, by the time they come to Pamphos, it's Paul and companions. A shift has taken place here. First, Saul is now going by Paul. I'll just quickly hit on that. I once had a Sunday school teacher that said Saul was his pre-Christian name, and then when he became a Christian, his name switched to Paul. I don't know what curriculum she was reading, but that is just absolutely not true. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. So he uses his Greek name when he's on the missions field working with non-Jewish people. So that's Saul Paul. That's why you see that switch take place. But more importantly, it goes from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and unnamed companions. I think Luke is cluing us in to an inter-team dynamic shift that has taken place. 
Paul and Barnabas have been a ministry duo for a few years at this point. And the ministry duo has always been Barnabas is the headliner and Saul is the opening act. That's how they've interacted. But now on their first missionary journey, Paul's spiritual gifts are taking off. His, uh, the investment Barnabas has poured into him, all these things, he's growing, he, he's l- turning into a place of a prominent leader, and now everyone is looking to Paul as the team leader, and Paul is the headliner, and Barnabas is now the opener. And that's a shift that has taken place. And realize for a lot of leaders, that would be a very scary prospect. Our sinful pride bristles at the idea of a a, a protege surpassing us in gifting or leadership or influence. Moving from the role of team leader to team member can feel like a bitter pill to swallow. However, we have no indication in the book of Acts that Luke or that Barnabas was in any way defensive or bitter. Barnabas was an immensely humble and encouraging man. He didn't see Paul's rise to spiritual prominence as a threat to be mitigated. He saw Paul as an asset to be empowered and platformed. Barnabas reminds us that effective disciple makers, our first principle, principle number one, focus on building up the right kingdom. They focus on building up the right kingdom. Barnabas was focused on building up the kingdom of Jesus, not the kingdom of Barnabas. And this focus allowed Barnabas to celebrate the ways that God was growing and using the Apostle Paul rather than becoming defensive or jealous or bitter. Barnabas' kingdom mindset meant that he celebrated team wins over personal wins. And as long as it was the kingdom of Jesus that was being expanded, he didn't care who got the praise, who got the affirmation, who got the notoriety, who got all of the attention. Barnabas refused to be bothered or threatened by the ways God was using the Apostle Paul. And the modern day church desperately needs to follow Barnabas' example when it comes to discipleship. If we want to be disciple makers at all times, we must remember that the task of discipleship is entirely centered on the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus. Discipleship and ministry is never about expanding the kingdom of me. It's just not. And as disciple makers, we need to remember my goal for discipleship is not because I like to be needed. It's not because I want to have an authoritative, authoritative position in someone's life, because I want to be influential, because I want attention, because I want affirmation, because it's not about me. It's all about the kingdom of Jesus. And confessedly, I think the American church has lost sight of this reality. I think there is a discipleship crisis brewing in American evangelicalism because countless American evangelicals are becoming disciples of the wrong person. Instead of becoming disciples of Jesus, they're becoming disciples of charismatic church leaders and pastors. They're making dynamic church leaders the focal point of their spiritual lives rather than Jesus. And that's toxic both for church leaders and for church participants. But sadly, many prominent church leaders crave this kind of unhealthy admiration and influence. They're tempted to build up their own little kingdoms I think the result of that is the growing celebrity pastor culture that we have here in America. And what are some specific ways we might see this tendency at work in evangelical culture? This past week, I actually went and took a peruse at some of the websites of the largest evangelical churches in America. And the vast majority, what do you think the first thing I saw on their webpage was? I'll give you a hint. 
It wasn't the gospel. It wasn't the Great Commission. It wasn't anything about Jesus. It was a picture of a prominent pastor speaking before thousands of people. What do you think that's communicating? Whose kingdom is being built up in that church? It's not Jesus' kingdom. It's probably the kingdom of that pastor. What are some other ways that we might be guilty of seeing this in evangelicalism as a whole? Perhaps it's through pastors who view the church as their church rather than God's church. Instead of being humble shepherds for Jesus, the great shepherd, they function as if they're totalitarian spiritual leaders who are inerrant in their judgment and decision-making. Perhaps this looks like the preoccupation many Christian leaders have with growing their platform and reach. They're more concerned about expanding the kingdom of their church or their parachurch organization or their online Christian resource center rather than expanding the name of Jesus. Right now on Facebook, I'm getting some weird advertisement. And the advertisement just says, click here to grow your church from 200 to 2,000. And I just want to write whoever is giving me that ad. That is a stupid ad. Because first of all, the only person who can grow a church from 200 to 2,000 is God, okay? Not your online five-minute video that I pay $100 for. You ain't doing it. It's the Lord. And second of all, that's saying that for some reason, 2,000 is inherently better than 200. I would much rather have a church of 200 faithful, committed disciple makers than a church of 2,000 people who are sitting on their spiritual butts and not doing anything and just being consumers, because that is never going to expand the kingdom of Jesus or make an impact. So maybe it's focusing on numbers rather than deep discipleship and growth. Perhaps this looks like Christians who idolize certain pastors or church leaders. They exclusively listen to their favorite spokesperson. I only listen to blank. I only read blank's books. I only, and this person is, is the focal point. I once worked at a church or the attendance on a Sunday morning dropped by over 50% when the senior pastor wasn't preaching. And rather than seeing that as a problem, he wore it as a badge of honor, like no one else can fill my pulpit. These are examples of dysfunction and disease within the American church. The celebrity pastor culture has only brought scandal, disappointment, and disillusionment. Your pastors here at Highland are not celebrities, okay? Let's, not that any of you were struggling with believing that, but none of us are celebrities, right? It's follow us as we follow Jesus. Jesus is the focal point, not your pastors. Or to think of it another way, disciple makers are supposed to be windows, not stained glass. Let me, let me explain that analogy, what I mean by that. Think of the purpose of a window. The purpose of a window is to see through it and to see something beautiful on the other side. No one goes over and says, man, just look at how beautiful this window is. No one goes around the high lunch, man, look at these beautiful windows with their steel around them. No, no one does that, right? The purpose of a window is to see through it, to see the beauty on the other side, to see the beautiful changing colors or the snow-capped mountains one day, mountain one day, or whatever else it is. You're looking through it to see something. But compare that and contrast that to stained glass. You don't see through stained glass, do you? Now, this is nothing against stained glass. I love stained glass. It's just an analogy, okay? So you don't need to give me emails about the beauty of stained glass and all those things. I'm not crashing on stained glass. But think about stained glass. The purpose of stained glass is not to see through it. It's to look at it, and to be mesmerized, to see the beauty, to see the art, to see the colors. It's to stare at it. Disciple makers are to be windows. You see through them to see Jesus. It's never about looking at me. It's always about looking at Jesus. 
We are not to be stained glass that says, look at me and put me on the pedestal and how wonderful I am and be my disciple. Ah, no, bad. That's not disciple making. It's all about being a window through which you see Jesus. And Barnabas was amazing at that. He was a window through which many people saw Jesus. I think through which the apostle Paul even saw Jesus more clearly. So Barnabas exemplified our first principle well, but he also exemplified our second principle well from the same verse. Um, Barnabas shows us that effective disciple makers, second principle, remember that sanctification is a process. Remember in the lives of our disciples that sanctification is a process. Look again at verse 13. Luke tells us that the missionary team, once it arrives in Perga, John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas and returns to Jerusalem. Now, at this point in time, John Mark is both young in age and also young in spiritual maturity. Barnabas, his uncle, thought that he'd be up for this multi-year exciting missionary journey. And Barnabas, or, uh, John Mark excitedly signed on, but then he realized this isn't like a never-ending cruise. This is really difficult. Whether it was the people that hated them or tried to throw them out of cities or tried to kill them or saying, we hate your guts or all these things, it just added up and John Mark said, I'm not ready. So he goes back to a more comfortable life in Jerusalem and he deserts them. So flash forward a few years, this takes place in Acts 15. After the end of the first missionary journey, some time has passed and Paul decides that he wants to get the band back together and go back and visit the churches that he and Barnabas had planted. So he goes to Barnabas and he says, hey, how about we go and do another missionary journey? Barnabas is excited. He's all on board. And then he says, you know what? I've been watching John Mark over these last couple of years. He's grown. He's bearing fruit. Let's bring John Mark with us. And Paul says, no way. We are not bringing that deserter back on the trip. That's actually the word. He says, he deserted us. Why in the world would we bring him back? And this causes a major break between Paul and Barnabas. And interestingly, Paul is now begrudging Barnabas for the same compassion, mercy, and grace that Barnabas had shown Paul at one point. Because Paul was once the guy that no one wanted to do ministry with because he was a failure and you couldn't trust him and he was going to trick you. And now Barnabas is showing John Mark the same grace and compassion and Paul says he doesn't deserve it. And, and Paul digs his heels in so significantly that they end up breaking up over this and they don't go on a missionary journey together. And I think that's a decision that Paul winds up regretting. I think this because in 2 Timothy at the end of Paul's life, he's in a prison in Rome, he's writing his final words and he says to Timothy, get John Mark and bring him with you to me because he is helpful to me in my ministry. As Paul is preparing for death, he urgently asks for John Mark to come visit him. Why? because John Mark has proven to be a valuable minister of the gospel. Paul says, I misjudged him all those years ago. And I think the reason Paul misjudged John Mark was because he forgot our second principle. He forgot that sanctification is a process. Sanctification is the process from the moment we become a Christ follower until we die or Jesus returns of saying no to the desires of our flesh and walking instead by the spirit. And good disciple makers recognize that sanctification is a long process that is oftentimes two steps forward and one step back. From the moment a person puts their faith in Jesus, we don't lay hands and boop, magically they're just like Jesus and never sin again. Doesn't work that way. It just doesn't, right? It's a process of gradual sanctification, which means good disciple makers recognize that in our disciples, we don't want to just hear right answers. We want to hear the real answers. 
We want to create atmospheres of vulnerability and authenticity where people can come and say, here are the real problems in our lives. And when we stop doing that and we have an over-expected or over-realized expectation for sanctification that from day one, you need to be perfect, all that's going to happen is people are going to put on masks and they're going to be stifled in their spiritual growth and they're going to be hiding a lot of sin and shame and brokenness that Jesus wants to deal with. We need to recognize that sanctification is a process. Good disciple makers help their disciples overcome past failures and pursue future faithfulness rather than defining a person by their greatest mistakes. Or to phrase it another way, godly disciple makers are patient, compassionate, and filled with grace towards those they disciple. They refuse to give up and write people off. They refuse to give into the lie that someone says is never going to change. Why do I even bother? We commit to seeing potential to be cultivated and we are patient with the process. And that really brings us to our third principle for disciple making. To uncover this principle, we need to consider the next section of our text in verses 14 through 16. Here's what it says. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, to, for the people say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. Now in these verses, Paul and Barnabas are traveling northward into modern day Turkey. And they arrive at the prominent Roman colony of Pisidian Antioch. And on Saturday, the Jewish uh, day of uh, observance on the Sabbath, they go into the synagogue, the local gathering for worship, and they go to worship and share the good news of Jesus. The community invo- invites Paul as a well-known traveling church leader to come and share a word of exhortation. And notice how Paul begins his sermon. He says, fellow Israelites and God-fearing Gentiles. He's specifically identifying his audience. Now let's think about those two groups for a moment. Fellow Israelites, those would be people who are ethnically Jewish. They were religious, well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, and from the same worldview background as Paul. But then he identifies a second group, God-fearing Gentiles. These would be Gentiles who believed that the Jewish God was the one true God. They were spiritually sensitive. They desired to follow the Lord, and they were oftentimes obedient to many of the Old Testament laws. However, they had not taken the plunge of fully proselytizing and being considered ethnically Jewish by going through the rite of circumcision. But considering both groups, Paul is preaching to a very religiously astute audience. This is an audience that has well-reasoned theological belief and they have a solid grasp on the Old Testament scriptures. Knowing this, Paul purposefully tailored his gospel message to be relevant and persuasive to the audience in front of him. Now, his sermon stretches from verses 16 all the way to 41. We don't have time to read through his sermon this morning. But I want to encourage you to read it sometime this afternoon or evening. So yes, I'm giving you homework. And trust me, just read this instead of being disappointed and watching the Packers fumble and stumble along to whatever they're going to do today. It's just going to save you a lot of grief, okay? Read Acts instead. But then, there's more to your homework. I want you to flip over a few pages, and I want you to read Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, 
That's a passage that documents another of Paul's sermons. However, this sermon is addressed to a very different audience. In Acts 17, Paul is in the city of Athens, and he is on top of the Areopagus, and he is speaking to a group of pagan philosophers. And Paul preaches very, very differently based on his audience of pagan philosophers in Acts 17 and his Jewish and God-fears in Acts 13. In Acts 13, Paul essentially Uh, constructs his sermon from just a bunch of quotations of Old Testament passages. It's basically him just copy-pasting different verses of, of the Old Testament scriptures. In Acts 17, Paul never cites the Old Testament once, but he does cite a pagan philosopher from Crete. In Acts 13, Paul talks about God's special relationship with the people of Israel throughout his redemptive history. In Acts 17, Paul talks about his general revelation to all people and how God is collecting uh, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. In Acts 13, Paul uh, focuses in uh, with the, the, and by demonstrating how Jesus is the long-promised Messiah from the lineage of Abraham and David. In Acts 17, Paul shows Jesus is the one to whom the God, God has given the right to judge the living and the dead. In Acts 13, Paul preaches as a pastor. In Acts 17, he preaches more like a philosopher. And by comparing and contrasting those two sermons, I think we discover a third principle for being disciple makers. We must contextualize our message. Good disciple makers contextualize their message. Before exploring this concept in more detail, let me explain our terms. Contextualization simply means that we tailor the way that we share spiritual truths so that those truths can be better understood, believed, and accepted. Contextualization helps us to be more effective communicators of God's word to those that we are discipling. Just think of Paul's example. His goal in both sermons was the same. It's always his goal, to help people turn away from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. But the way he packaged that message and the way he went about presenting the truth of that varied greatly depending on the audience that was sitting right in front of him. Paul recognized that you as a disciple maker need to be a bridge. You're a bridge between the timeless truths of God's word and the audience right in front of you. And you are finding ways to take those truths and present them in a way that's more easily understood, believed, and applied in the lives of those that you're speaking to. I know this sounds like a big idea, but realize we do this all the time. We contextualize all the time. It's taking place right now. It's taking place over in children's church. And on Wednesday nights at One Way Club. Our teachers are taking the timeless truths of God's word and they're contextualizing it for kids as young as four years old. That's contextualization. So maybe you are really good with kids. Maybe that's your spiritual gift. And perhaps your call to be a disciple maker could be contextualizing the timeless truths of scripture for our kids by teaching in one of our children's ministries. Or another way we might do this, parents, we are called to contextualize God's word for our kids. We are called to teach them, to disciple them. That's one of the reasons we're doing the New City Catechism this year. We want to give tools to parents for how, for knowing how to ask questions and to guide your family in spiritual conversations. Our youth leaders on Wednesday night at G180, they are definitely disciple making by contextualizing. They are doing a hard task of taking the timeless truths of God's word and applying it to teenagers, perhaps one of the most difficult audiences in the world to connect with sometimes, right? So 
Good job, G180 leaders. I'm the G180 pastor, so I have to, uh, you know, give them some public praise every once in a while. Good job, guys. But that's a way that they're doing it. So maybe if you are good with teenagers, you could serve in in G180. Our cross-cultural missionaries contextualize the message. They think of creative ways to talk to cultures that maybe are are non-literary and how to present scripture to a culture that has never had the written word. Our Sunday morning sermons, we tried to contextualize those. Our illustrations, applications, level of, level of technicality, we contextualize that to meet our audience. Uh, believe it or not, when we do ordinations here, we have a different level of technicality than we do on Sunday mornings. And we do that because you guys probably don't want to hear 10-syllable theological words on Sunday morning. That probably sounds like watching paint dry, right? You'd much rather have the timeless truth of God's word presented in a way that's understandable and relevant and applicable. There's two things that requires to be effective disciple makers who can contextualize scripture. You have to have a strong grasp of scripture and you have to have a strong grasp of your audience. You have to love learning more about scripture. You need to know your Bibles well, but then you also have to be good listeners. One of the best ways to know your audience is just by listening and asking questions, getting to know people, showing an interest in their lives. Good disciple makers know how to help people feel loved and they know how to love scripture well. I do want to highlight one additional aspect of Paul's sermon in verses 16 through 41. And this will lead us into our fourth principle for being effective disciple makers. If you read through this sermon this afternoon, you're going to realize that this sermon is profoundly Christocentric, meaning that the theme of this sermon is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is always the center of Paul's writing and ministry and discipleship. So let's think of our fourth principle this way. Effective disciple makers don't miss the forest for the trees. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Don't miss the forest for the trees, right? That's a a common axiom that warns a person to not get so caught up in the nitty gritty details that they forget the big picture. Because over time, you can get so caught up in the studying or planning or, or detailing of something that you begin to lose sight of your why. You lose sight of your bigger picture. What is the big picture of discipleship? The big picture of discipleship is to help people love Jesus and want to look like Jesus. It's to help people love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, minds, and strengths and love others as themselves. It's to love and look like Jesus. Jesus is the focal point of discipleship. And Paul gets this. Everything in Paul's life always goes back to Jesus. He's a one-trick pony. It's all about Jesus. However, we need to realize that sometimes disciple makers can get so caught up in the process and the program of discipleship that they begin to lose sight of the person it must be directed towards. In our spiritual lives and disciple journeys, we begin to lose the force for the trees whenever we begin treating the processes and programs of discipleship as an end in and of themselves rather than a means to an end. Just think of who's guilty of doing this in the New Testament. It was oftentimes the scribes and the Pharisees. They were caught up in the process and the program of religiosity. They wanted to teach you, this is how you tithe, this is how you pray, this is how you read the Bible, this is how you worship. They, they had a checklist. Go through the process, go through the program, and you will be a good religious Jewish person. But they were so caught up in the process and the program that they lost sight of the bigger picture. They lost sight of their why. Those things were never an end in and of themselves. They were a means to worshiping God. And they had turned those into the end themselves. 
We need to be careful that as disciple makers, we aren't falling into rigid constructs of legalism where it's all about doing, 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 doing. And we forget it's about loving Jesus. It's about loving Jesus. How might we be guilty of this, of losing the forest for the trees? Maybe it's by cultivating a love for theology instead of cultivating a love for the God of theology. I know this is probably surprising, but there are some people out there that love theology more than worshiping Jesus and bearing spiritual fruit. I know that's brand new news. We've never met some, I'm kidding. We've all met people who love theology and debates, but once you actually talk about loving Jesus or doing spiritual fruit things, well, that's not that interesting. Give me a book instead, right? It's gotta be both and. Big heads need to lead to big hearts or else you've got a big condition, okay? So (laughs) second of all, maybe... It's when we're emphasizing the what of discipleship at the expense of the why. Here's how you pray. Okay, great, but why are we praying? Here's how you read the Bible. Okay, but why are we reading the Bible? It's to worship and commune with the Lord. Perhaps it's when we are content with behavior modification instead of heart transformation. And as parents, we really need to be on guard for this one. It can be really easy to say, I just want my kid to look and act a certain way. I want them to seem like they've got it together. So we focus on behavior modification. We focus on fruit rather than root heart causes. We don't want to train people to just have their spiritual mass that they can put up to look religious. That's not disciple making. We want to focus on root problems, not just fruit behaviors. Or perhaps it's treating the process of discipleship like a drudgery rather than realizing it's all about delighting in Jesus. Effective disciple makers are not interested in in simply taking people through a cookie cutter program that just teaches them how to look, sound, and act religious. That's not our goal. Effective disciple makers, remember, it's not about looking, sounding, or acting religious. It's about loving Jesus. It's all about the person. Biblical discipleship is all about Jesus. And when Jesus is truly at the center, we will begin to see spiritual fruit in those that we are investing in discipling. And that leads us to our final principle. Point number five, effective disciple makers celebrate the life change they see in others. Celebrate life change. Look at the last verse in our chapter. As Paul and Barnabas conclude their ministry in Pisidian and Antioch due to persecution, they're able to celebrate as they depart for the next ministry location because, verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. They were able to see the life change and that was fuel to them and they could celebrate that and they could affirm that. They saw the joy. They saw the Holy Spirit at work. They saw the change that was taking place. And those are the good moments. Being a disciple maker is not always a fun calling. The reality is when we are investing in disciples and investing in people spiritually, not everyone's gonna bear fruit. I think of the parable of the soils. You've got some seed that goes on the path and the devil snatches away. You've got seed that falls on rocky soil. You've got seed that falls on thorny soil, but you also have seed that falls on good soil that bears much fruit. In those moments, yeah, there's gonna be a lot of people that don't always bear fruit and, and, and discipleship's hard. There's gonna be disappointments. There's gonna be moments where it's frustrating. However, when we see people begin to bear fruit, when it clicks, when they see Jesus, when they love Jesus, when they in turn are discipling others, there is no greater joy than being used by God in the spiritual growth of another person. 
There's no greater joy than seeing a disciple come alive in their faith and say, I, I, through the mercy and grace of God, got to be a part of that process. All glory to God, but that's exciting. And my fear is there are so many Americans that profess to be Christ followers that are missing the most profound joy because they've never taken an interest in another person's spiritual life. They've never been a disciple maker. They've never cultivated fruit. And the sad part is the person that misses out the most is you because there's such joy in celebrating the fruit. And effective disciple makers are also on the lookout for spiritual fruit to celebrate in lives of others. Think about this way. Have you ever had someone commend something in your spiritual life that someone came in and said, man, I see you doing this well. I see God at work. And if so, that was probably like gasoline on the fire of your spiritual life. Encouragement goes a long way. We need a lot more Barnabases. He was the king of encouragement. Instead, if you're like me, I am better at finding areas of improvement than areas to commend. That's my personality uh, bent. But I have to guard against that. Right? Because we have, to, we have to couple. Yes, there's opportunities for growth, but man, here's the ways that you're doing well. And that's one of the biggest ways to help people come alive in their faith. Each spring, our young adults crew takes a, a, a crew of young adults down to Mexico for a mission trip. And one of my favorite parts of that mission trip, each morning we gather together around the fireplace, we do our morning devotional, and then we just spend time saying, what are ways that we can encourage each other? What are ways that we want to encourage and say, I saw so-and-so doing this and it was awesome. And, and you should see how people come alive when you say, you know, I know you didn't think that anyone saw this, but I saw God using you in this moment. Boom, so much encouragement. Why are we so bad in encouraging? Disciple makers know how to encourage and celebrate the spiritual fruit we see in others. So how can we do that? Maybe it's celebrating something that your spouse is working really hard on in your marriage. Maybe it's celebrating your kids and the way that you see God at work in their life. Maybe it's talking to your closest friend and affirming how God is using them in your life. Maybe as a church, it's finding creative ways to celebrate stories of God's faithfulness and life change. We don't do white roses for no reason. We, we want to celebrate when lives are transformed. We do baptism services where people share how, how God is encouraging them. How awesome would it be if there were a thousand people at baptism services rather than 15 people because everyone leaves afterwards and we celebrate the life change that's taking place. Maybe we need to rope Pastor Dave up here and have story hour with Pastor Dave more often and just hear about the way that he sees God at work. But what are the ways that we can celebrate life change? So in summary, our world needs Christ followers to get off the bench and accept their call to be spiritual disciple makers rather than comfortable Christian consumers. We need men and women who accept the Great Commission as the mission statement for their lives. I know it's a scary calling, but God will equip us if we are faithful to fulfill it. Effective disciple makers focus on the right kingdom, remember that sanctification is a process, contextualize their message, refuse to miss the force for the trees, and celebrate life change. May Highland be a church of disciples of Jesus and disciple makers for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled that you invite us to be a part of your kingdom work. We're humbled that you have given us the role of being ambassadors for the gospel. And we don't take that role lightly. And though it's scary, though it's intimidating, though at times we feel under-equipped, we recognize that if we are faithful, you will give us the words. You will fill us with your spirit. You will lead us. You will grow us. 
and you will turn us into the disciple makers that you want us to be. So Father, help us to be a church not of comfortable consumers, but of those that are contributing and being leaders and accepting the call to be equipped for the work of the ministry. We pray that uh, these words might encourage us and inspire us to find ways to use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.